And uh, welcome to Aphonia Recordings' first podcast this April 5th, 2007. Today we are going to be talking with myself, and uh, I'm Andrew Senna, and this is Benjamin L. Robertson here. We're the founders of Aphonia Recordings, and I guess today we're just going to sort of improvise and talk about work that we're completing and releasing on the label, as well as our sort of general goals for Aphonia Recordings for those out there in uh, internet land who care to listen. Um, yeah, like I said, my name is Andrew Senna. Ben, you want to introduce yourself? or Hi, this is Ben L. Robertson. Don't forget the L. What's that stand for again? It's, uh, it's Luca. It's my little oh, name. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Anyway. So what are we listening to, by the way? Uh, we're listening to uh, Movement 3 of the Diatonic Genus EP. It's um, actually upcoming release here on Aphonia Recordings. Um, first release, actually. Right. AR, it's, it's catalog number is AR001, I believe. Correct. Oh, that's fantastic. Um, what, uh, how could you trace this piece of music, for example, just to sort of dive right in here with a, with a direct question about the music that we're listening to. How did you arrive at the point that this... I, how do you see this piece as a point of arrival for you in your sort of compositional career? Because I know where you started out with, where it was maybe more like... Um, it was kind of like a sandbox kind of affair where you just had a bunch of things right. and you would just run them through tons of delay and reverb and layer the hell out of them and... Whereas now, uh, and we've talked about this, you have more of a, a very sort of, uh, what's the word, uh, a deliberate or, or yeah. deliberate approach to what you're doing. There's a very sort of scientific or mathematical way. How did how did you make it to that well, level? Um, you know, honestly, I, I started out mainly with working with uh, tape mainly. Mm -hmm. um, it was about 19, 1998, I believe, is when I purchased um, my first four track. Um, that kind of started this whole thing um, of actually having finding source work to um, to work with and manipulate over time. Um, well, these manipulations at, at first were random and, uh, pardon the pun, uh, experimental in that I, kind of learning what I could do with sound, a lot of work with uh, tape manipulation, changing tape speeds, listening to all those strange harmonics that happen when you slow a recording way, way down. But it was all for the most part, I guess, fairly accidental. Um, I think, I'd say starting about uh, about five years ago, um, actually while I was studying um, with, Ar with Arun Chandra, I start started to, actually maybe even a little bit before that, um, began to look at the compositional process a, l a little more outside of myself. Um, again, that kind of goes back to some of the accidental work, but Mainly, mainly, I, I guess uh, a big catalyst for that was my interest in microtonality, um, which you know in itself is is systematic, and that kind of started off that whole my that whole relationship with composition, um, and I think to some degree brought it to an ex extreme with the work I was doing about about three years ago, where I had very little um, very little personal input with what I was uh, creating. 
um, had very little to do with feel and a lot more to do um, with the science of sound and, and with um, the process. Process, maybe. yeah. I mean, extremely process-oriented work. Um, the interesting thing with Diatonic Genus, um, where that diverged a little bit, um, you know, I started off started off mainly with an idea, which, which was to use this, um, this, this Greek tuning and uh, somehow form structure out of that, as well as um, harmonic, the harmonic structure of certain um, processes, mainly with the really tight delay lines. I'm actually creating pitch using um, <coughs> fedback delay lines form of resonance and looking what I could do with that. Actually, originally the piece was intended to be a predominantly acoustic piece. I intended to actually have a cellist Derek Johnson. Um, this piece? You this mean, piece, right. yeah. Okay, that's um, what I thought. And it, it's kind of funny because that's that started off as mainly wanting to write a piece specifically around harmonics and um, pretty much staying really consistent with the idea of having um, a certain starting point in which uh, certain parameters were defined. Um, for example, um, the tuning system, for one, big, biggest parameter there, and uh, deriving structure from that. Say, for example, you play, you play an interval, um, an interval of one over one, you know, like any given frequency, say 220 hertz. And uh, using just intonation, which for people who aren't familiar with that, is a system where you use small whole number ratios to create tunings, as many older tuning systems were before the you know, introduction of equal temperament. Anyway, long story there. Um, but, <laughs> but basically, finding with any, with any harmonically rich sound, such as a cello, you're going to have harmonics existing, say, at three times... The, the frequency of your fundamental, that fundamental pitch that you identify that instrument as playing at, and um, creating creating melodies that were all derived from those harmonics. Right. Now, just to sort of interrupt you, uh, were you choosing these intervals sort of arbitrarily, or was there a sort of a system that you had defined for, I mean, going back to the process in terms right. of <clears throat> if I have all these whole number ratios, you know, what what am I trying to accomplish? Am I am I just creating a scale, or am I creating a? Do you, do you see what I'm saying in terms yeah. of? Uh, I guess okay. Well, I could choose this ratio, this ratio, and this ratio. Blah 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 blah. But were these derived mathematically? How did you arrive at your? Well, you started out with um, you know basically eight different intervals. You have um, one over one, sixteen fifteenths, six fifths four-thirds, three-halves, which is your perfect fifth, your very perfect fifth, um, eight-fifths, nine-fifths, and two over one, which is your octave. Now, um, each four-set forms a tetrachord, um, which is with the, um, which is basically two, in a way, um, two identical sets of intervals in between those intervals. Um, what I sought to do when creating a melody was um, stick with the notion of using intervals that, that um, existed between octaves as opposed to um, intervals existing within that octave. So, you know, for example, if you take, um, if you take the interval of, um, I'm going to space it out here a little bit, but uh, <laughs> if you take the interval of eight-fifths, and go up an, 
go up to the next octave and another three halves. You, there's an there's an interval that exists between that between that those that interval there, and uh, a lot of those are, re are really unique. And so I tried to stick with in writing these melodies that were intended to be results of um, harmonics. I I wanted to use those as my primary source material. And for the most part, I actually I stuck with that that model. What was interesting with this piece is I kind of uh, diverged back to where I originally started, which was a process of experimentation. I more intuitive a, process, more, maybe. Yeah, much more intuitive. I had all this great source material that was created from all these processes, and then you know that comes in with the um, the resonator patches that I built with Max MSP, those programs that I created, mm -hmm. um, the tuning structures, and um, use of harmonics in that. I had all this wonderful source material to work with. And in the mixing process, I, I let my—I freed myself up a little bit to um, to feel it out a bit more. And honestly, that's more of where the direction I'm going in. That might have to do with just my maturity as a composer or, or what, whatever. But I'm finding now that before I didn't have all those tools, and and now because of you know depth of study that I've done um, regarding tuning, regarding um, synthesis algorithms, um, and just a stronger understanding of programming, which is now the basis of mm -hmm. most of most of the sounds in my pieces, I feel like I could let go a little bit, which right. is which is nice. <clears throat> now um you mentioned <clears throat> excuse me, you mentioned Arun Chandra. How I mean we both had Arun as a as a professor at the Evergreen State College and I know that he sort of incited the same sort of things for me, uh, I guess in terms of being less of a finger painter and more of an architect in terms of what I was going <laughs> to write. Um, but how, you, my, my original question was about that turning point when, I mean, was there something about just pure experimentation that was leaving something wanting? Because I know that for myself, when I'm working <coughs> on things, I you know, a deliberate approach for me could be anything from writing, I want to write a pop song, let's say, so I'll write a pop song, or I want to write something that might sound kind of like a Hitchcock, you know, a Bernard Herrmann score or something, and then I do it. Uh, it's not so, you know, it's not maybe necessarily, I guess it's maybe like genre writing or something, it's something that a, any sort of film or television composer would do. I mean, it's, you know, writing canned music, essentially. But, back to Arun Chandra, what were some of the things, like, what, what did he expose you to that you hadn't been exposed to before in terms of maybe what your influences might be now? I guess, what, what, did, what role did he play in, in bringing maybe uh, you know, different artists, different composers to your attention, and what were those artists? Or who were those artists? Um, it's interesting, because I don't think he really introduced me to that many artists, per se. Really? Um, he, he, you know, brought up names like uh, Ligeti's use of um, micro polyphony, mm -hmm. uh, micro polyphony, excuse me. Um, and I was already familiar with Ligeti's, Ligeti's work. I, you know, I, I loved his work and I actually found his work influential to pieces I, I had, I had done previously because I was familiar, I was familiar with it. Mm -hmm. Um, what Arun really brought to me was a sense of intent in my work. Mm -hmm. And, um, a lot prior to that, you know, I, I was working with processes, I was learning these processes, learning these synthesis processes, um, learning about um, you know, the nature of psychoacoustics and all these things and finding all this lovely source material to work with, um, but not really having, for one, having the tools or um, the inter interpretation uh, of, 
someone else right. who is, for one, capable of understanding what the hell I'm talking about, right. um, and really calling me on my on my shit, frankly. Right. Well, I, that kind of brings up a funny story for me, because probably not everybody out there knows this, but uh, Ben and I have known each other for quite a while, and uh, of course, as you now know, we went to Evergreen together, and... and did contracts there together, independent study type things, but um, there was one day, uh, I remember when we were meeting with Arun, and uh, he referred to your music as fascist, and I, and he meant it as a compliment, really, but the funny thing about it was, is that what I, what you and I were doing were sort of politically, diametrically opposed, in a sense yeah. that what you what you were doing at that time, anyway, was very deterministic, and what I was doing was very... Um, uh, self-regulating or indeterminate, I guess, yeah. um, which I guess would be more of the technical term. I was playing more with indeterminacy and sort of trying to create a directorless or, or uh, leaderless ensemble, whereas you were trying to, in terms of numbers even, because I remember looking at charts that you had where you just you had all these ratios written out, and I remember you explaining it to me and, not, and me not totally following you. Um, but yeah, but then it made me think of um, this composer, Cornelius Cardew, who started this uh, vocal scratch ensemble in England, and his bent was very communist, and I realized that, like, he was literally a communist. It wasn't just like people interpreted his work as communist, but he was one and wrote his work according to that sort of political persuasion. And uh, <clears throat> I found that funny because ideas that I thought that I'd come up with on my own were actually ideas that he had already done 40 years prior and so then I saw that as like our, us having to sort of because he was doing the same kind of work that I wanted to do yeah and and so then I could sort of see my work as being communist even though I didn't have that political persuasion and didn't even think about it really I just wanted right. to try something but uh, but I think it's kind of interesting too maybe as, as kind of a footnote here to say that sometimes people infuse political Content. I know this is one thing that Arun does a lot, probably still does, I'm assuming, anyway, because that's his part of his thing. Um, how do you feel... This is kind of just a random question, but, like, how do you feel about the, in, the, the injection of political views into an artist's work, whether they were intentionally put there or not? So in the case of right. Cardew, he was actually writing stuff because he was a communist and because he wanted to sort of... Um, he wanted to, I don't know, express that uh, those ideals within his music. Right. But I know that we've had a lot of conversations yeah. about politics and music, but uh, we just haven't had one lately, I guess, is the thing. We used to have these a lot more. What, but What's ironic with, <laughs> with that is, um, in a way, I found um, some of... Some of my intent in my piece is somewhat ineffectual in that um, I originally I intended to create this free music, and because of um, the level of is this movement for by the way? Um, I think the CD jumped around actually, Andy. Um, oh yeah. Oh no, this is no, this is a, this is the track called Omission, <laughs> oh, okay. which uh, is a little pun on a past uh, performance that Andy and I Andy and I worked on. Um, but anyway, going back to that, um, what was yeah, what was funny with that is you know I came into creating experimental music with this wide open 
notion of like, I want to create music that's never been heard before. I want to create music that's mm -hmm. free of um, of these things. And I was creating this extremely controlled music. And a part of it was probably a result of me learning to control my means and uh, my means of creating sound. And I never, I never intentionally infused um, infused my work with with that kind of um, political notion. Intent, I'm a, like intent, yeah. Um, I'm. I have to say, I'm. I might might be ignorant of my own work in that way. Let's take a break really quick here. Um, sure. And uh, just listen to some music here. I we will be back in a second. This is which track is this? This is a. Uh, um, this is actually this isn't off of the Diatonic Genius. This is a ooh. piece called uh, Paylog, uh, Study in timbre versus tonality. Okay, we'll, we'll discuss uh, your process on this one, which I think is closer to your more deterministic sort of, this might be, it might have been a stepping stone between where you are yeah. with your current sort of yeah. more freeform intuition versus yeah. your uh, deterministic fascist music before. <laughs> so let's take a break here. Sure. So okay, we're 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 back now here. It's the Sandra Senna. Of course, this isn't like station identification. If you're gonna listen to this crap, you're gonna, you know, maybe listen to it all the way through. It's not real time, right? So you can skip around and, um, but yeah. So this is Andrew Senna and Ben Robertson here. We are, we just got listened to, done listening to, Paylog. Is that what it was? Paylog, a study in timbre versus tonality. That's the full name. That is that's the full name, Andy. Now, why? What? Why the name? What's what's the deal? Timbre versus tonality. What what in God's name does that mean? Well, a while back, um, 
when I was studying psychoacoustics and studying what sound is, what the sounds we hear are, um, one thing that fascinated me, and this goes to my obsession, fascination, obsession with um, tuning, um, was the notion that all, any sound can be sp split up into components of individual sine waves, right. all at uh, varying phases and varying frequencies and amplitudes. So um, what Paylog, um, the Paylog piece is actually about is um, taking, for example, you could take any sound and break, down, break it down to these components, and um, knowing those components, you can determine for what sounds, what tuning systems work best for them. Right, so, for, so, so you know, you're saying that, um, just to clarify, you could take a complex waveform and then basically analyze it and extract all the component pure waveforms mm -hmm. or sine waves out of it. That's what you're saying. Theoretically, yeah. Yeah, theoretically. It's sometimes harder than, than, than uh, harder, harder done than said. Um, but, for example, you take, um, like we were talking about before, the sound of a cello. Now, a cello, its harmonics are all have very simple, and by harmonics I mean all those sine waves that make up the sound, have um, very simple relationships um, to each other. You know, you have your fundamental frequency, you have a frequency that's up from that, usually reduced down in amplitude, and usually reduced linearly. So each, each with each harmonic, up, you go up upwards in frequency, the amplitude of that harmonic is going to be going down, um, reducing, right. yeah. Um, so with, with a, you know, with a standard linear waveform like a stringed instrument, like a cello, you're going to have your fundamental, you're going to have twice your fundamental, three times your fundamental, four, five, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Now the interesting thing when you get into um, sounds, um, bell-like sounds, for example, sounds used in um, ensembles like a gamelan, uh, xylophones, um, a, lot, a lot of metallophones um, have a much more complex um, harmonic structure. So you won't you won't be having this same simple relationship. You may have an interval, for example, just arbitrary interval of um, fundamental of one, and then your next frequency may be two point oh seven five, as opposed to two. Right, and so it's it's a lot it's a lot more complex, and so it's those sounds they don't sound as consonant if they're played right. with a um, a system such as just intonation that's based off of those simple um, simple relationships. Um, so right, with, they're 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 yeah. inharmonic, right? Yeah, in, inharmonic, yeah. So with um, with, pay, with the paylog piece, I intended to kind of do the opposite instead of creating um, creating a tuning system based on a sound, I decided to take, create a sound based off a tuning system. Your sound being your timbre, tuning system of course being your tonality, um, mm -hmm. hence the title. And um, so with that, I, I used, what I did is I used um, those, all those, those frequencies um, over multiple octaves, and by the way, these octaves, their the term octave is used loosely in, in this, in that instead of each octave being twice as um, twice the frequency of the previous octave in the paylog system, it's actually roughly two point oh two times the frequency. So, so it's a stretched octave. It's a stretched octave. Right. And um, now, the, just to interrupt you, in the paylog tuning system, that's is that a Balinese uh, mm -hmm. tuning system? Yes. Okay. 
So it's an Indonesian specific yeah. to Bali. Uh, that's gamelan music, yeah. essentially. The gamelans are tuned to a paylog scale. Right. Is that correct? And one thing that was interesting of that tuning as opposed to the ones that came with Java, from Java, and I may be bastardizing the term minor when I'm saying this, is uh, to me the, the um, Balinese tuning had a more uh, dissonant uh, minor quality to it, which attracted mm. me to it. You know, I'm a spooky guy. So there's that much of a difference between the Javanese and the Balinese yeah. Yeah. Uh, tuning system. Both use a similar stretched octave, but... Um, the intervals are going to be, um, you're going to you're gonna have a, a darker sound. So by minor scale, though, you're not necessarily referring to a minor scale as we as Westerners know it, are you? I mean, are you... Mm, referential, I mean, to, to what... It's not actually a, a, a Javanese or Balinese minor scale, but it's a minor scale imposed upon, say, the Java, Java, Balinese, in this case, no octave? Um, no, it's just... Um, it sounds minor. Okay. To us, us Westerners, it sounds minor. That's what I was getting at. So, it, you know, it sounds darker. Right. Um, well, you're a dark individual, Ben. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Creature of the night. Um, <clears throat> so I, so I, I tried to re basically recreate a sound, a timbre, um, based on this tonality. And to do so, I used um, processes such as convolution, where I was, you know, taking, taking all the possible frequencies that could be produced by um, all of si S sine waves um, stacked up on each other, um, produced by the Paylock scale, and um, using a, um, a voice to convolve the signal. So I'm basically amplifying the frequencies that are common to both um, both human voice, which I had a, a soprano Meredith Young perform on that piece, and had her <coughs> Um, perform the, basically a series of notes, um, <clears throat> a short, a short repetitive melody, basically. And as as her voice sang back these these melodies, and I layered um, basically different octaves of her voice, you know, transposed electronically um, on top of that that kind of that that substratum that. All those all those frequencies that would be um, apparent in, in that in that scale. So you have multiple octaves taking place, and when when those when the notes that she was singing um, passed over those frequencies, you had points of resonance. The interesting thing was um, what I did with her voice is I um, took one just took one note and I and I bent it over time, and as her voice um, basically fluidly transition from one note to another, um, you would be picking up these these harmonics along the way. Right. And so you have this uh, kind of this almost reference to a melody happening. And some of that was, un some of the actual result was unintentional. That's kind of what's interesting about this piece is it was, um, all the parameters were, were solid, were set in stone, um, no fudging on them. But the results were, um, not anything I could have expected. Right. So, in just maybe to sort of uh, go back over that, I think what's fascinating about that in, in timbre versus tonality, okay, so that means that by the, the, the harmonics that are present in the voice, in the human mm -hmm. voice, you were combining that with all of the sort of sine waves or pure tones within the Paylog scale, or that mm -hmm. particular one that you chose. Reproduced from the Paylog scale, yeah. 
um, that by passing through that sort of scale or that octave, let's just say for simplicity's sake, that that you were you were hearing resonances that you would not thought would happen, like that you couldn't foresee them. Well, um, I mean, because obviously you had maybe yeah. some idea that if you combined, if you wrote this melody for her to sing, that you'd have some idea that okay, she's singing this note, and this note is really close to this one in Paylog, therefore the two might uh, be sympathetic yeah. to one another, and, and the amplitude might double, or they, there might be some beating that goes on. Mm -hmm. What what did you notice in particular like that was different? I mean, were you just getting tones and melodies that you weren't expecting? Is that... Rhythmically, it was, um, it, there was the most variation took place, because you know, you have point A and point B in frequency that you're, mm -hmm. um, you're crossing with the voice. You're starting up, oh, so for example. Um, now, if in, in the range, in between that high note and the low note, there's a, a number of notes that are going to exist in there, the rhythm is going to be determined um, not by the spacing uh, of notes if they were sung as discrete steps, but they're going to be determined um, on their on their placement on their on their frequency placement. You know, for example, you'd have in kids look at the score on uh, Paylog versus, or excuse me, on the Paylog piece when it comes out, it make a lot more sense to you. But um, basically, you're you're not they're not going to be one, two, three, four, um, because it's just not going to match that way. It's going to um, you're looking at point A to point B with frequency, the, because those those steps in the Paylog scale don't exist at one over one, three over two, four over three. Um, you're, they're not going to be. They're not going to have that um, mathematically, um, simply mathematically related um, ratio between them in time as well as in uh, tonality. So you're hmm. going to have you, instead of you might have something along the lines of that. <laughs> Just like that. Just like, exactly like that. Well, uh, well, it kind of interests me. I mean, couldn't you expect by the introduction of something like Glissandi into the vocal performance that you would That's the word. sort of get some things that you didn't know were going to happen? Because, I mean, mm -hmm. I mean, I know Leggetti used that to great effect of having you know these tone clusters and having singers um, maybe start on a note and diverge in glissandi or start you know maybe even on a just a thick chord and then having them all sort of converge and cross by you know having a point of they cross departure a, and a point yeah. of arrival so that they're all sort of crossing over at some point and so by virtue of that you get these really dense and harmonically complex it's going to be unexpected Right, you're not always going to get the same result. Yeah, and I would say that'd be especially true for like something that Leggetti did, where you know you'd have a choir singing it. Exactly. So the imperfections would be implicit not only in the performance but also in the way the piece is written. That, that, That's kind of what, yeah. what was my point: is that by by using Glissandi in it, that you're sort of welcoming that, or you're sort of yeah. There's an expectation. Maybe you didn't expect the things that actually happened, but there might have been an expectation like, well, we're going to see what happens. Yeah. And um, that's one thing that I've I've learned over time. With um, one reason, I really like to include acoustic performances along um, with um, electronically produced work is that um, 
with any acoustic recording, you're going to have there's going to be unexpected results, and even be, it becomes that becomes accentuated ever more when you're dealing with um, really specific, specific traits um, that are a parameters that by just small deviation can uh, the sonic result can deviate really wildly. Right. Well, that makes me think of uh, I think it's what's his name, Alvin Lucier. Yeah. Or is it Alvin Curran, Curran or Alvin Lucier? It's that piece called I'm Sitting in a Room. Yeah, yeah. And it, it makes me think of that <clears throat> because that that piece will be different every time that you do it just because of just the room. And that made me think in terms of like the acoustic instrument. You know, every time you record something acoustically, it's not as deterministic as like even a synthesizer. I think that's why a lot of people like you know, valve or tube amps and they like analog synthesizers because the circuitry is sort of, it's sort of loose enough that you get these variations and distortions in a signal that make it more colorful or warm or whatever sort of, you know, euphemism you want to give it. It gives that sort of sense of randomness and so it makes it feel more alive. But it made me think of that piece because even the room and the mic you're recording with, the kind of instrument they have, you know, there are many de deviations and it would be interesting to see if you took a series of performers performing maybe the same thing or, or, or slight variations of something that's almost the same and seeing kind of what results you get just from having a different performer or a different instrument in this case. Right. So instead of vocals, you could use like a cello or, you know, mm -hmm. something else in place of it to sort of see what would happen right. there. And the funny thing is, um, particularly when you're work working with processing algorithms, one funny thing Derek told me when uh, he first heard Diatonic uh, Genus EP, he's like, well, what track did I play on? I'm like, well, you played on all of them. <laughs> and um, even if even if the end result, um, the acoustic instrument is not recognizable, um, those unpredictable traits of the acoustic instrument will be recognizable in what we perceive as the depth of the music, mm -hmm. um, the variation in there, all, all those things you did, you didn't intend the, the small, the small sounds, right? But, um, you know, I've, this is one thing I've learned. Speaking of control, we were talking about earlier, is I can't be in control of all of that. Um, I right. think for a while I might have had the pretense um, when I first started working with Rune that I that I could, mm -hmm. and sure, yeah, when I'm working with um, a big stack of sine waves, sure. But I, you know, I kind of learned over time that I, I got greater enjoyment, um, and this probably has a lot to do with the direction I'm going in now, with um, with embracing those unpredictabilities. Not to sound like a sap, but <laughs> well, no. But I think it's good because I think any great artist has a sort of a matched or sort of dovetailing dovetailed relationship between their intuition and what they know technically. Yeah. And I think one without the other is kind of like a it's right. an incomplete puzzle or something. And, and certainly we appreciate the musicians like, you know, Yo-Yo Ma or like Vladimir Horowitz or whatever that can technically play something really well, but the level of intuition that's brought... this I have this whole thing about virtuosity, and I think it's partially because I'm a really crappy musician. Oh. <laughs> like, like, no, but I'm... I, and that's, I, you know, I perceive myself that way because I have this vision of what virtuosity means. I know what I, I know when I hear it, and I think most people do. Um, but I also take issue with it because, and, and Rune and I had conversations like that. I mean, he's coming up a lot in this conversation, but, um, Rune, hello out there. Yeah, right. 
He's he'll be tuning in. We're gonna release some of his uh, computer noise. Um, but you know, virtuosity always bothered me because I saw it. Yeah, you know, I took classical lessons, guitar lessons from Maroon, and he he doesn't really even consider himself a virtuoso, even though he knows that he could be one, or he might have been actually at one time. He was he's one of those players like he was playing this piece by uh, Benjamin Britten called Nocturne, and it was for the guitar and. It, you know, you look at the it's it's written in standard notation, and the and it looks like somebody like like a bird flew over it and took a crap on it. I mean, like the notes are all over the place. They're really high, really low, and there's figures on there where like his thumb would be playing four four, and his two his you know one and two fingers would be playing in three four. You know, at the same time, um, you know, on the staff, and he would just read it. You know, and I kind of thought, well, that's that's virtuosity. And I was talking to him about it. And I was like. You know, this is kind of frustrating because it feels like there's this unattainable, you know, level of playing that that seems to be at least in in, in the classical uh, world or or discipline uh, is what you strive for. You strive for this perfection, and you strive for this being able to nuance uh, nuance your own personality into it, but at staying very faithful to the music at the same time. The written music. I mean, every finger has got a place in the music. And he said to me, he was like. Anybody, anybody can learn how to, you know, type a story or, you know, anybody can learn the task. You know, anybody can, yeah, type or anybody can set up a microphone. Anybody can do a, a number of, like, tasks. But it's the sort of intuition and uh, meeting the technicality. That's all a long description about nothing, really. Um, yeah, so... I just was I get on a diatribe sometimes yeah, about virtuosity, but no, I no, I, I think I know what you mean. Um, <clears throat> it's it's interesting from my perspective because I, I I frankly can't play any instruments very well. I ben I plays drums by the way. I, I I do play drums occasionally, more occasional than not occasional. But um, and uh, I'm gonna tell everybody a big secret here. That's is that um, I honestly got to skip that level of virtuosity with that. But I think in the end I ended up paying my dues in that um, there's a lot of laziness that can happen in electronic music that's good. A lot of really good laziness. I mean good laziness in that you can can skip over um, some of those some of those um, roadblocks with technology but to produce work that's good and vital and um, hopefully timeless, knock on wood, um, you're still you're still digging you're still digging in there deep and there's and that's I think my understanding of what what you were saying in your discussion discussions with the room with virtuosity is yeah sure anybody can learn to um, play an, play an instrument. If they have the physical capability or a mental the, capacity, the schooling to, or the position, yeah, even exactly. too. I mean, that was part of his conversation sure. too. Is that it's almost kind of like a an elite thing. Yeah. Not everybody has time to spend eight sure. hours a, a day in front of a piano. I don't know, but yeah, but um, yeah, exactly. And I think you know, it all it all comes out in the end. I I I think that um, dealing with electronic music, which you may not have to have 
that train level of training with um, physically. Um, I'm frankly a klutz, so I, I, um, it's, I don't think I would, if that was, that's that what it took to succeed physically, that I, I would have a problem. But right. what, but having the ear and having the ability to, um, to, to examine it a, a little bit closer, more of a process of examination and sensitivity to some degree. Um, I was going to say, it almost sounded like you're going for that whole technology democratizes music or something thing. Oh, was I? No. See, and there you go. Uh, but no, you were talking about electronic <laughs> musicians, you know, being lazy and stuff. And But I think, and then it sounded like you were saying that, well, you know, at least they can do it because it's in front of them. Yeah, but I, I kind of cut you off there. That's okay. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, it's something that I feel like I've um, technically gained a lot in the time that I, I have... Um, been working, been producing music in this fashion. Um, I've learned a lot, and I th I think that that's the biggest part of that process. You know, I've not so much even learned individual programs, individual languages, et cetera, et cetera. But I've I've learned what what sound is, what um, what where its limitations meet my limitations. Mm -hmm. And um, that's exciting because it's it um, it's a lot more it's a lot more open and is inevitably what's kept me working on this kind of work. Hmm. Yeah, yeah, I don't know if that makes any sense. Uh, I think so. I mean, I kind of lost my place there a little while ago. I was like talking and I said something that didn't make any sense. And I was By like, the way, this is our first interview. I was like, I was talking and I was I, I said something that you know sounded wrong and then I started thinking about how it sounded wrong and then I was just thanking God that this isn't live 